Good evening. So I hope your day of slightly more silent, quiet practice was beneficial. For myself, I had a a vision, an image of how the day was going to play out, and then for various reasons it didn't. And so, coincidentally, fortunately, the talk I was going to talk about, the theme, is impermanence. And so it was actually very helpful to be focusing on that as various situations were unfolding and changing and developing. But as a result, it's possible this talk might be a little, uh, what's the word, perhaps not quite as coherent. We'll see. So over the course of the retreat so far, I've been briefly mentioning how all of our insight practice is designed to help us see clearly into what are known as the three universal characteristics of all experience. The direct understanding that all experiences are impermanent or anicca. Because of that, they're unreliable and unsatisfactory, dukkha. And they're not happening to a permanent, fixed, unchanging me in the middle of it all who is in control and that's the truth of anatta or not so now it's possible that for some of you on hearing that description of the three characteristics perhaps you feel a feeling of lightness and relief and recognition that that's how it is for others it may be more the opposite a reaction of dislike resistance, perhaps even doubt. And it's true, perhaps, that as ideas, as concepts, the language of these three characteristics might not sound very pleasant or appealing. But with practice, as we start to directly experience them for ourselves, the concepts fall away, and in their place we realize actually the benefits, the many benefits that come from living in alignment with anicca, dukkha, anatta, namely, more happiness, more ease, more peace, more freedom. Unfortunately, though, we can't just think our way into this understanding. As with most aspects of the Buddha's teachings, intellectual knowledge alone is not enough. We start with that intellectual understanding, But then we need to bring it down from the head level to the heart level. And we do that by contemplating it, by meditating with it, and exploring the truth of it in the context of our own daily lives. And then, after many years, that wisdom can move even further down the body, from the head to the heart to the gut, So in English, we talk about knowing something in our gut. And when our understanding has matured to this level, we don't have to think about whether impermanence is true anymore. It's We just know it. We fully embody that wisdom. So what helps that process of the wisdom ripening and deepening? Well, those two highly skillful mental qualities that I've been emphasizing all through this retreat, namely sati 
and samadhi, mindfulness and steadiness of mind. And these two work together, again, like that image from the sutta of the two hands washing each other. So samadhi calms and steadies the mind so that we have more capacity to see clearly. And with that steadiness, we understand very directly in our own experience the truth that everything is constantly changing. And we've been exploring that in every guided meditation in the retreat so far. We sit down and pay attention to our experience. What do we see? The breath comes and goes. Sensations in the body come and go. Sounds come and go. Thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, all forms of mental activity come and go. And we start to realize that only our concepts about our experience are somewhat more static. And actually this is one strategy that we commonly unconsciously use to try to stop this flow of experience. We create fixed ideas and views and opinions and beliefs and self-perceptions to temporarily fix that ever-changing flux and give at least an illusion of stability. But the downside of that is that those concepts create suffering because they act as mental prisons that keep us trapped often in painful reactivity and resistance of various kinds. So it might sound paradoxical, but the more steady and stable and strong the samadhi is, the easier it is to see how unstable and unsteady all the rest of our experience is. In other words, deep stability of mind reveals the deep instability of everything else. And that's because when the mind has developed a baseline steadiness and equanimity, it becomes much easier to see when we move out of that. Now, in our ordinary everyday lives, we're just so caught up. Those bowls of water metaphors that I used last night for the hindrances that metaphorical water of the mind is agitated, boiling, mossy, stagnant, and so on. But when the water becomes really still, it's very obvious when there's even the slightest ripple of clinging, grasping, craving, resisting, which, as you all know, is dukkha, suffering. And so that's why I've been framing our practice in terms of these two movements of clinging and release. Clinging and release happens on small and large scales. So then the practice is about recognizing when and how we've got caught or identified with experience and then how to release that clinging of identification. And when we can do that, we re-enter that flow of moment-to-moment experience without holding on to it, without resisting it, without identifying with it. We just sit back and know everything flowing smoothly. 
But then, inevitably, at some point, we take the bait, so to speak. Some particular experience hooks us, and we go, yep, that experience, that's me, that's mine, that's who I am, that's how it is. And it can be quite fascinating to watch that process, to catch the mind in the act of identifying with something, getting hooked by it, running with it, and often spinning out in some kind of proliferation, which just reinforces those neuronal pathways in the mind and strengthens that same old story yet again. Does anyone recognize that experience? Where you can just be sitting there going, oh yeah, sight, sound, smell, taste, thought, sight, emotion, that's it, (laughs) that's the one, that's how it is. And then we let that release at some point and we're back in the flow. So there is just that feeling of ease and flow when we stop interfering with or identifying with things and just open to the natural unfolding of experience moment to moment. And that sense of flow isn't unique to meditation. In fact, something similar was recognized as what he called flow state by the Hungarian-American positive psychologist whose name is something like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. It's one of those very challenging names, and that's my best attempt. Sorry if anybody knows it better. So this psychologist wrote a book about flow state research in 1990 that was quite influential at that time. And you may have experienced some of the characteristics of flow state yourself, perhaps in meditation, or can also be experienced playing sports, or perhaps uh, engage in a a creative activity, or playing music. So the psychologist describes flow as being completely involved in an activity for its own sake. The ego falls away. Time flies. Every action, movement and thought follows inevitably from the previous one, like playing jazz. Your whole being is involved and you're using your skills to the utmost. And he identified some specific characteristics of this flow state. He described them as that the activity is intrinsically rewarding. It has clear goals that, while challenging, are still attainable. There's complete focus on the activity itself. It's accompanied by feelings of serenity and loss of feelings of self-consciousness. There's a lack of awareness of physical needs. It develops through strong concentration and focused attention. And it brings about a sense of timelessness, a distorted sense of time, feeling so focused on the present that you lose track of time passing. And again, you might recognize at least some of those aspects of this flow state. And I wanted to share it just to show how modern psychology is recognizing some of those same beneficial qualities that come from calming the mind and attuning to impermanence that the Buddha discovered 2,600 years ago. And in that list from the psychologist, I'd like to highlight just a couple of aspects. 
the feeling of serenity that comes from releasing self-consciousness and the sense of timelessness. So the sense of timelessness points to what at first might sound like a paradox. When we are able to connect more fully with the truth of impermanence, it can temporarily free us from the tyranny of ordinary time. And these days, many of us, I think, have the feeling that we don't have enough time. In fact, it's sometimes described as a, a defining of our era as one of time poverty. Time is the new poverty. Maybe you recognize that one too. And when we sit in meditation, though, by contrast, we allow ourselves to start moving at the speed of the body instead of at the speed of the mind or the hyperspeed of our technology. And we can taste some moments of ease. And I think that's perhaps one of the attractions of meditation practice, that it helps us to reclaim some peace in the middle of our frenzied busyness. And it gives our poor, fraught nervous systems a bit of a rest or in the context of a retreat like this, actually a deep reset. So mindfulness in this way does reduce stress, and offers us some self-care, and it temporarily alleviates our unease, our dis-ease. But it goes way beyond that too, because when we practice it within the framework of insight meditation, it develops the wisdom that stops us from getting so distressed in the first place. In the beginning, though, most of us have a fairly maybe superficial and probably ambivalent relationship to change. So on one level, it's, it's obvious. Everything changes. I'm no longer five years old. And my life is very different now than it was five years ago or five years before that. And if I keep living that long, it'll be very different in another five years. And we can look around and we can see that the seasons change. Even over the last few days, have you noticed in the mornings? It's getting a little bit darker. Winter is on its way. Seasons change, the weather changes, sun rises and sets. These are natural cycles. And for the most part, we appreciate them. We might even enjoy the transitory, fleeting aspects of the experience. So when we're in this frame of mind, we can hear descriptions of impermanence and resonate with the poetry of them. Some of you might know a famous passage from the Diamond Sutra, from the later Mahayana tradition. And apparently this sutra is based on a reference from that the Buddha spoke it says, So you should view this fleeting world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So if we're in a balanced frame of mind, we might resonate with the poetry of that. And of course we're quite happy to accept change when it results in the end of something that we didn't like or didn't want. 
perhaps back pain. When the back pain finally releases, we're happy to acknowledge the truth of Anicca. But when it comes back again ten minutes later, we're not so keen on Anicca. We resist it and wish that the absence of back pain would last a bit longer or even forever. Because I think there is something in most of us that believes that we should be able to master the truth of impermanence so that we can make the bad stuff go away as quickly as possible and the good stuff stick around wherever. And of course it's obvious when we hear it like that that this is delusion, it's (coughs) ignorance. But opening to the truth of this on deeper and deeper levels is not so easy because it is such a core belief. So as I mentioned the other night in relation to feeling tone and to the hindrance of sense pleasures, if we don't have any Dharma training, our usual strategy when we come into contact with something unpleasant is to try to escape it by going after something pleasant as an antidote. And we can see this deeply ingrained habit, not only in the small scale of our lives, but also the bigger picture too. So if you think back over your own life at different stages, I'm guessing there were probably things that you believed or hoped that were really going to do it for you, that were going to give you relief from your unhappiness once and for all. So maybe when you were a teenager, you might have thought, well, if I can just finish high school, then I'll be happy. And then you finish high school, and it's like, if I can just leave home, then I'll be happy. And then you leave home, and it's like, well, if I can just get a job, then I'll be happy. Perhaps you get a job. If I can just get a better job, then I'll be happy. Maybe you get the better job, and it's, if I can just find a partner, then I'll be happy. Maybe you find a partner. If I could just find a better partner, then I'd be happy. (laughs) And so it goes on. More money, more status, a beautiful home, an exotic holiday, a sabbatical, a dream retirement. On and on and on. There's always something just out of reach that's going to really do it for us. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to improve our lives. But if there's an unconscious expectation that at some point everything is going to come together just perfectly and then we'll finally live happily ever after, we're setting ourselves up for profound disappointment. Plus, it takes a huge amount of time and energy to keep trying to get conditions out there to be exactly the way we want them to be. And even if we do occasionally manage it, Again, because of impermanence, the happiness doesn't last. So unless we have some inner awareness, some mental training, we tend to be just at the mercy of life's ups and downs. And this is how Pema Chodron describes this predicament. She says, as human beings, we share a tendency to scramble for certainty whenever we realize that everything around us is in flux. In difficult times, the stress of trying to find solid ground, something predictable and safe to stand on, seems to intensify. But in truth, 
the very nature of our existence is forever in flux. Everything keeps changing, whether we're aware of it or not. What a predicament. We seem doomed to suffer simply because we have a deep-seated fear of how things really are. Our attempts to find lasting pleasure, lasting security, are at odds with the fact that we're part of a dynamic system in which everything and everyone is in process. So this is where we find ourselves, right in the middle of a dilemma, and it leaves us with some provocative questions. How can we live wholeheartedly in the face of impermanence, knowing that one day we're going to die? What's it like to realize we can never completely and finally get it all together? Is it possible to increase our tolerance for instability and change? How can we make friends with unpredictability and uncertainty and embrace them as vehicles to transform our lives? So, some pretty weighty questions there. And these are questions that our practice is inviting us to contemplate. So rather than putting all of our energy into the search for something out there to fix the problem, which from the Buddha's perspective is our fundamental ignorance, instead we want to be looking in here to change the relationship in here. So the image that's often used in the teachings for to represent ignorance, fundamental delusion, is a pig. Because the pig just snuffles along with its snout in the mud. It's sniffing out the next thing to eat, even though it's already pretty fat. And most of the time its ears are flopped down over its eyes, so it's blind and can't see where it's going. So the pig is a metaphor for this predicament. When there's no mindfulness or insight, we tend to live our lives blindly, self-centeredly, greedily, and ultimately unfulfilled so the antidote to that ignorance is to sit in meditation and practice opening moment to moment to impermanence to change and so we can develop the equanimity and the wisdom to navigate that same impermanence and change and loss on the bigger picture of our lives So this is how the Zen priest Joan Halifax Roshi describes it. She says, We, in our lives, experience one loss after another. It could be the loss of a breast, loss of a loved one, loss of a child going into adulthood, which is a way of loss for many parents, or loss of identity, loss of capacity. She says, My own experience of aging There are capacities that I had ten years ago I no longer have, and I have to reflect upon those losses. And of course, the loss that all of us will face in anticipation of death. And it's something that brings great depth and meaning into our lives, and also helps us to articulate internally our priorities, what is really important for us. 
So this brings us to the aspect of impermanence that most of us find pretty profoundly challenging to engage with, and that's the truth of our own impermanence, our own mortality. So over the course of the retreat so far, we've been cultivating these two wings to awakening of wisdom and compassion, so that in that process we can strengthen our capacity to face into these painful, uncomfortable and challenging aspects of life. So I'd just like to touch briefly into the practice of death contemplation, which as many of you know was very highly recommended by the Buddha and is very highly avoided in most of the uh, teaching settings that I'm in. I'm not sure about... uh, monastic settings, it's much more taught there, but generally in terms of retreat centers and so on, it's not presented so much. And that, I think, points to our society-wide collective level of denial of the reality of death. And that's on top of our own individual wish to quietly avoid the topic. And even in my own practice, I've been uh, various times worked with death contemplation somewhat intensely for quite a few years now. And I did a year of uh, Zen chaplaincy training, and I spent time volunteering in a hospice. And I'm still surprised at times by feeling the resistance, different aspects of fully opening to the truth of my own mortality. So it was almost a relief then to read a research study that found that our brains actually have a primal mechanism that distorts our understanding of death. There's something biological in the brain that sees death as something unfortunate that only happens to other people. (laughs) Recognize that? Oh, that's a shame. Glad it's not me. And the authors of the study theorize that the brain does this because knowledge of death goes against the grain of our whole biological drive to help stay alive. And I mention this because it gives us some sense of what we're up against when we do try to reorient the mind to take in our own mortality. So we have this biological movement away and then the collective, cultural, social Uh, bias as well. So we tend to see life and death as being fundamentally in conflict with each other instead of inseparably intertwined. And when we make death into the ultimate enemy, it creates more stress, more distress, more suffering. And on some level we all know that battling death is ultimately futile. So this is perhaps one reason why the Buddha did put so much emphasis on the practice of death contemplation, or maranasati, to give it the Pali name. Whether we're fully conscious of it or not, it actually takes effort to keep death at bay. So learning to face into our fear of it now, and to gradually metabolize that fear, can free up the energy to live life now, more fully, more consciously, 
and with more integrity. And this issue of time is particularly important when it comes to death because none of us know how long we have. And most people, though, think they can escape the discomfort of death by just waiting for as long as possible, procrastinating before they finally face into it, telling themselves, I'll deal with that when the time comes. But who knows? I'm sure all of you know people who died suddenly and unexpectedly, maybe at quite young ages. Probably many of them didn't think that they were going to die at an early age. There's no warning, there's no advanced preparation. One minute here, next minute gone. So that procrastination approach is very risky. And I know some of you here have done hospice work or um, spent time with friends or relatives who are dying. So you might have had the experience of being with people who were not at all able to accept what was happening to them in the last stages of their life. And in a small amount of hospice work that I did in the US, the deaths of people who could not come to terms with their own dying were really hard to deal with, not only for the person themselves, but their family members and also the staff were profoundly affected. On the other hand, I also met people who had genuinely come to terms with their own dying process. There was still physical discomfort, and at times there was emotional pain too. But generally speaking, it was inspiring to be around them, because for the most part they had a sense of inner peace and calm and openness that was quite remarkable. So again, this contemplation of death is a practice. And we want to engage with it carefully, gently, in no way forcefully, but also creatively so we can listen and find what works for us. And there are many different dimensions to it. There's the practical aspect, the relational aspect, our own emotional and spiritual preparation. And at different times, it might be more appropriate to work on one of these areas more than the others. So there's one further benefit that I'd like to just touch into with death contemplation. And that's the power that it has to focus us on our deeper priorities and to catalyze a stronger commitment to waking up. So Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogi, said, without mindfulness of death, whatever dharma practice you take up will be merely superficial. And Gil Franzel says that confronting death directly allows us to work through our fear, aversion, confusion around death. And done well, it helps to bring a deep sense of peace and well-being. So again, we want to, if we choose to move into this terrain, we want to do it very carefully. Otherwise, we risk pushing ourselves into more denial or shutting down or numbing out. Because this is not about denying the natural grief that comes in the face of loss. 
And we want to metabolize that grief in ways that don't overwhelm us. Similar to the way I was talking about working with difficult emotions the other day. So change, impermanence, death is a central feature of life. And it can be exhilarating, frightening, exhausting or relieving. It can spark sadness or happiness, resistance or grasping. But as we see impermanence clearly, we see there is nothing real that we can actually cling to. And as Gil Fransdell says, our deep-seated tendency to grasp is challenged, and it may begin to relax. We see that our experiences don't correspond to our fixed categories, ideas, or images. We realize that reality is far more fluid than any of our ideas about it. And confronting impermanence profoundly in this meditative way opens us to liberation. The final liberative level of impermanence is the movement towards letting go at the deepest level of the psyche. So Ajahn Chah once said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you will have complete peace. This release is sometimes called Mahasukha, the great happiness. And it's said to be the only happiness that is ultimately reliable. So that's where all of this is heading. Thank you for your attention. Let's just... Sit for a moment, let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.